Hi, and welcome. Today, I'm talking with Cynthia Loisel Seguin. She is a certified wedding planner in Canada, and she is also a writer for a magazine and some blogs. She is also the co-host of Flying for Flavor podcast with Stephanie Pichet, and they talk about a variety of topics there. They talk about travel, about different wines, and of course, food. Now, just a side note, Cynthia and I have known each other for a very long time, and you will probably notice the familiarity between us. There was also a little friend that joined us for this conversation. Cynthia's little puppy was squeaking some toys, so see if you can catch that. As you undoubtedly know, I like to interview anybody from scholars, students, academics, amateurs, and wedding planners because talking about their topic, they are so excited and I love to hear their passion. Not all the topics are Canadian, although this one does work for Canada. And I'm also Canadian. I'm Rosie. I'm a Francophone in Canada. And this is my podcast. I guess now we're jumping into some traditional history, eh? Today I'm talking with Cynthia and I will let her present her topic. It's quite fascinating. So thanks for being here, Cynthia, first of all. And second of all, if you want to present your topic. Thanks for having me, Rosie. Um, today, when we decided we wanted to talk to each other, which we do fairly regularly already, but in this case, uh, we want to talk a little bit about uh, the history of wedding traditions. I'm a certified wedding planner here in Canada, and uh, a lot of my couples are a little bit we're a little bit more removed from the history than we used to be when earlier generations were growing up. We're not quite as we don't see as much of the embracing of history and our family traditions as we used to. So I'm seeing a lot of my couples are dropping off some of those traditional Western wedding activities. And so I thought it might be kind of cool just to talk about the origins of some of them. And it gives people a chance to decide, is this an, a tradition that I want to embrace on my special day? Or is this a tradition that I'm totally not cool supporting the original kind of origins of it? So I thought that might be kind of interesting for new people who are getting married, especially since we're in a position uh, this year where people aren't getting to have their weddings. So they have a little bit more time to plan and think about it. Yeah, absolutely. This is a good time to really think about these things, especially when you're in the planning stages. So did we want to run through maybe sort of a typical Western wedding day and that can give us ideas of what's going on? I thought that might be the easiest way to approach it, just because if we think about a wedding day, there are things that happen again. In a, in a, and I say traditionally Western in that we're talking um, North America, like European nations to a certain extent, anywhere where like it's a strongly Christian ceremony, there are a lot of things that are uh, that these ceremonies have in common. Okay, so we start the morning, everybody wakes up and what do we do from there? So uh, the one of the first things that at least the women on the uh, involved in the wedding that day tend to get involved in is uh, kind of hygiene and beauty. Uh, you know, they're having their showers, they're having their hair done, they're having their makeup done. And something that I thought was really interesting that I didn't know when I first started weddings is, did you know, uh, Rosie, why weddings are traditionally held in June, that June is the month that's known for weddings? No, I actually didn't know that. I got married in December, so I'm off the beaten path. <laughs> I was in February, so I, I totally kicked tradition as well, too. But actually, the reason that June weddings are so popular is because people used to take their annual baths in May. So thinking back to like the 15th century, when people weren't bathing every day because their access to water wasn't the same, their access to soap wasn't the same, and, or bathing just really wasn't important. It's like springtime when it starts to get warm enough for people to be bathing outside. Those annual baths happened then, which made June a little less stinky than, say, April would be. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. Something else related to the hygiene and smell of things as well. When we think about, again, about a traditional wedding day, everyone gets ready. Then they start posing for photos. And usually in photos, we're looking for flowers. Everyone in the wedding party has flowers. So the men might have boutonnieres, which are put on their lapel of their jackets. Uh, parents might have boutonnieres or corsages on their wrists. And of course, the wedding party, uh, the brides and the bridesmaids typically have a bouquet of flowers. We would assume that a lot of people are carrying flowers just because they look pretty. But that's actually not where the tradition comes from. 
there's two kind of popular theories about why wedding parties carry bouquets. And the first one, again, is around smell. Uh, have you heard of the term nosegay for a small bouquet? Mm-hmm. Yes, I have. Yeah. So a nosegay was literally carried by an upper class man or woman. They'd either keep it in their pocket or hold it in their hand. And when you're around some really stinky people, they would take a sniff of their nosegay to make their nose happier. The idea of like making your nose smell better because everyone around you, especially if they're going in with the common folk who are definitely only bathing once a year, it allowed them to kind of keep their nose purer. Now, extend that to a wedding celebration where they might have 20 or 30 or 50 people. Imagine the smell. So again, all of those bridesmaids carrying these aromatic herbs and lilies, and which are traditionally wedding flowers. You see a lot of lilies and wedding bouquets. Um, it helps to combat the smell around them. But that's only one reason. Can you imagine? <laughs> I feel like small weddings would be all the rage just for the smell alone. Although I guess you get used to it if you're everyone around you is only bathing once a year. Then a lot of our traditions as well come from like superstitions held back in, again, like 15th, 16th, 17th century. So another reason why brides carried bouquets, uh, they were stuffed full of herbs and spices to ward away evil spirits. So less concern about evil spirits uh, these days, less concern about the smell of people, unless we're having a lot of garlic or onions at the, the dinner. But it was, it was between masking body odor. And so we don't need that anymore. So what's happening is I've had a couple of brides um, that I've worked with. And, and I probably, I do want to explain that I'm using the gender normative bride and groom just because we're dealing with a lot of traditions that didn't often, unfortunately, take into account same-sex weddings or gender neutral people. I really want to make that clear that it's not about excluding people. It's just we're talking about traditions that predate acceptance of, you know, some of the most amazing people I know around me. So I've had a lot of couples, uh, specifically brides, opting out of carrying a wedding bouquet the last couple of years. And one said, I hate flowers. Why am I going to carry them? And I explained the tradition. She said, yeah, that didn't convince me. And so instead, when both parents walked her down the aisle, she just, you know, held on to both parents and didn't worry about having a bouquet. And it actually solved a logistical issue for her. Mm-hmm. Have you seen other traditions that have replaced the flowers? I've seen some people carry, like there's things that are special to them. It could be a book. Uh, I know in uh, in some more traditional religious ceremonies, people might carry a Bible. But beyond that, it's more been more about freeing, freeing up their hands. I've seen more variations on the boutonniere for the men. Uh, I've seen men have like a little Lego figure there. I've seen golf themed little pins. So they've, it's almost like handmade brooches that reflect the personality of the groom and the groomsmen versus the girls replacing their flowers. Getting ready. Everyone we know that every wedding I've been to, the bride has had some semblance of a white dress, usually pale, might be ivory, might be champagne, white. Um, back in the day, it was if you were a virgin, you had to wear white. And if you weren't a virgin, you weren't allowed to wear white. Well, that's kind of changed in more recent times. But do you know why brides wear white? Why that's become the color of brides? I'll say no, even though I do. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that's hilarious. Uh, it actually comes, uh, it's actually got nothing to do with virginity. For thousands of years, white did symbolize celebration. And it also has reflected, like, uh, represented affluence, so having money. Because if you could wear a white dress and keep it white, you must have some cash in your pocket back in the olden days because it was so difficult to keep things clean. But realistically, when you got married, you just wore your nicest dress. Before Queen Victoria got married, it was just your prettiest dress, something might have borrowed a friend's dress, something along those lines. But Queen Victoria, her wedding had a huge impact on Western weddings. And the biggest impact that we see is in uh, the white wedding dress. She chose a white wedding dress, which was very against tradition back then. Before that, especially uh, royalty wedding dresses were colorful and and vibrant, and they, they kind of showed off everything about their affluent space, which I guess the white still does. But after her wedding, it became standard practice that uh, weddings here on in the, the bride wore a white dress. I'm seeing a lot more of my brides kind of kick that one aside as well for a couple of reasons. One being, uh, again, it's really difficult to keep a white dress clean. Uh, the number of weddings I've seen where by the end of the night, the dress is just filthy just because life happens and, and you're hugging a lot of people and going outside and dancing and alcohol and red wine. But um, I'm seeing a lot more people are actually going with either colored dresses or um, or even pattern dresses just to reflect their own personality. And quite frankly, not all of us look great in diamond white. And what about dress style, you know, dress length? What is more traditional? 
Uh, so length varies based on the times. It's always been a longer dress. I think if we think way back, it was all about being more proper and covering all of the body parts. Don't let an ankle show because that's way too sexy. Uh, and I think there's something about as as the tradition has evolved, uh, we haven't gotten to as many short dresses because it's the, really the one time that you can go all out and be a princess for a day and wear that big, beautiful, over-the-top gown. That said, I mean, it also depends on the financial status of the family because you'll see, if anything, that's probably one of the biggest purchases that, that people make for their wedding day. It's certainly one of the prioritized uh, costs for a lot of my couples. And so going with, again, that showing that opulence that you can based on your stage in, uh, in society lends itself to a, a larger, bigger, fuller, long dress. Bridesmaids. Our bridesmaids wear dresses as well, usually. <laughs> unless you're Deanna Troy. Yeah, unless it's a whole other thing. Have you noticed that, you know, usually bridesmaids are matching, uh, certainly back in, I say the olden days, 80s and 90s, and, and long before that, they were always matching style, color, shape, the whole nine yards. And even now, as we're evolving with different um body positive images and, you know, people of different sizes being able to wear kind of different styles to suit their own body shapes. We're still seeing they're either matching in shape or matching in color. Mm -hmm. uh, that comes from, again, warding off those evil spirits and the concern that if the evil spirits were going to come for the bride on her wedding day, that they didn't want them kidnapping the bride. So by surrounding her by people who are dressed like her, so in the past they actually had the same dress as the bride or similar style to the bride, it would confuse the evil spirits and they wouldn't bother trying to kidnap the bride. That would have been a scary thought on your wedding day. Yeah. Well, and this is the thing. So one of the most fascinating things for me in researching wedding traditions was such a, a, a slap-in-the-face reminder of how far women's rights have come and gender issues and how women really were currency. When it comes to, uh, for example, dad giving them away, the reason dad walks the bride down the aisle and it's considered giving her away is because often fathers would use their daughters to pay off a debt to a wealthier landowner, to um, trade in status and move the family up to, again, you might have, you hear about a dowry where you pay to take the wife off the hands and she comes with, you know, 20 sheep and, you know, two bundles of hay or whatever. Uh, so really, literally, it's a holdover from when daddy handed his daughter off to the man who won her, or who bought her for the highest price. Same as the idea of wearing a veil. That comes back to two things, warding off evil spirits again but also arranged marriages when the groom doesn't exactly know what he's getting. Leaving the bride covered until the end of the ceremony makes it so the groom can't back out if she is not pleasant to his eye. It's terrible. Isn't that awful? Like it just blows my mind. Some of these, these like literally barbaric kind of ideas, the best man. Yeah. You know, so typically the best man is is like the best friend of the groom, might be a close family member to the groom, but that's not why he's actually called the best man. The best man was to serve as armed backup for the groom in case they had to resort to kidnapping the bride, either from disapproving parents or a bride who doesn't want to be get married. So he brings along the best man, the best one who with a sword, who is the best fighter who can help him make sure he can kidnap the bride. Wow. <laughs> Right. So when you start thinking about some of these things, you're like, um, yeah, weddings all of a sudden aren't all that romantic and definitely aren't the girl's day. Right. It, that's like some of the really interesting stuff about it. And this is why sometimes we're seeing some of these like, I don't want my dad. Why is my dad giving me away? Why can't my mom give me away? Why can't I, as a individual, strong woman, walk down the aisle myself? And those are all absolutely acceptable. But I always say, I just want you to make sure you know where this whole ideas coming from. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not saying that that people getting married, that you know, young women shouldn't dream of daddy walking them down the aisle. It's still a really beautiful thought. My dad walked me down the aisle, um, but it sure as hell wasn't about him handing, him off to my, handing me off to my husband <laughs> by any stretch. Well, my dad did tell my husband, no refunds, no exchanges. She's yours now. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> okay. So something else about getting ready to... Um, I think most people have heard of something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. And of course, and a sixpence in my shoe. And 
it's probably one of the first things that a lot of uh, my couples are like, no, I don't really feel a need to do that. And I respect that because it's like they don't understand the purpose of it. I do like the symbolism of it. So I'll share some of the symbolism and then we'll and then we can kind of get into one that's no longer around. So something old represents the ties to the bride's family and her past. So it's like typically it's something from grandma, great grandma or mom to kind of, you know, remember their their family and their past are a part of their future. Something new represents the life to come with her husband or her spouse. And again, um, typically that is often a gift from the groom to the bride or something she's purchased new for herself for that day. Something borrowed. Again, similar to the ties to the bride's past, the idea is that it's meant to be something from someone who is in a successful marriage in order to pass on the good luck. So that said, my my clients, I don't say, oh, it must be from someone who's married and not divorced because... Again, I think it's a little bit antiquated in the superstition side of it, but it's a lovely way to acknowledge someone who might have some, I don't know, advice or, or some experience that they can hand to you when they're kind of lending you their item. And then something blue. Any idea where that comes from? I, I feel like I do, but I probably can't remember right now. <laughs> the, color, the color blue actually represents uh, faithfulness, loyalty, and purity. It's the idea of, of incorporating that color. The same reason why we see a lot of white flowers in wedding bouquets to, to represent purity. Sometimes you'll see yellow to represent loyalty. Blue stands for faithfulness, loyalty, and purity. So, But there's a, a fifth one that we don't see as much in North America anymore, and it completes the rhyme. So it's something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue, and a lucky sixpence in your shoe. So a sixpence is actually a coin that is still exists in the UK. So it's a throwback to when we were a British colony. And a sixpence was a, a coin that was actually used in, uh, in regular currency. So that has gone kind of the way of the dodo bird simply because of the scarcity of, of finding sixpences. And maybe the comfort in your shoe. I feel like that would be quite painful. <laughs> It's super not comfortable for sure, but I think we actually in North America, like in the past, transitioned that into a penny. And so do you remember penny loafers? Yes, I do. You know, I mean, we're a little bit young because they had like a renaissance when we were in high school, but they're really from kind of like the 50s and 60s. And there was a little spot for the penny in your penny loafer and it was that was meant for luck. So again, the same thing with the sixpence in your shoe is just meant to bring you luck. And that's pretty much what all of these individual items are. I like the the tradition of it because it brings people together from your life to pull it together. But it's all, again, based on superstition and warding away those evil spirits back in the day. And what about the garter? Is that something that's traditional? Oh, the garter. This is, this is really fun. Well, fun is not the right word at all. It's actually really terrifying. So back in, actually not very long ago, a reason that a Catholic wedding could be annulled is that it wasn't consummated. And the concept of consummating the wedding, of course, is having sex after you've gotten married, uh, because, of course, everyone's a virgin before they get married. And so by having sex with your husband and wife, that kind of consummates, finishes off the like wedding tr- like ceremony, for lack of a better way to put it. And back in, in the olden days, quite frankly, in order to ensure that she was a virgin, the groom actually went and they did it immediately following the ceremony. And if she didn't bleed, there was some trouble. I mean, God forbid, because not everyone bleeds their first time. It's kind of a terrifying concept for that poor girl. But the idea of the garter was that while the bride and groom are consummating their ceremony, in order to prove that it happened, wedding attendees needed to get their hands on a piece of the wedding garment. And the only way they could get a piece of that garment in theory was if she took her dress off because then they were, they could then get at the dress and and grab their piece and prove that the wedding had been consummated. So take it a next step where maybe they weren't tearing apart the dress because that's so barbarous, but uh, the bride was wearing a garter and then the garter had to be presented to prove that the wedding had been consummated because the groom got the bride's garter off. And the only way he could get that garter off clearly was by having sex with her. So fast forward to nowadays, the garter is actually a remnant from that custom, which definitely makes it a lot less attractive. Well, in my opinion, I guess that's, it definitely makes it less attractive for me. But what I'm finding is that as our culture and our 
society is changing and a lot more couples are living together before they're getting married. A lot more couples consider themselves committed before the ceremony happens. When DJs or MCs are calling all the single ladies or all the single men onto the dance floor, no one's hitting the dance floor anymore. Not just because they're not married, but if they're common law, they consider themselves married. If they're in a committed relationship, they don't consider themselves single. So it's actually getting harder and harder to get people on the dance floor for things like throwing the the bouquet or throwing the garter. And then the other side of it is, is I think that still in society, there's two things about the catching of them or, or wanting to catch them. One is that we still see being attached to someone as um, like a good thing and that you've, you've, you've made it. And if you're single, what's wrong with you? Why are you single? And if someone's choosing to be single, it's like, oh, they're still looked down upon. So who wants to go out? And if someone is choosing to be single and does not want to get married, why are they going to go on the dance floor to catch a garter or a bouquet? So we're seeing that tradition has morphed into... Um, a lot of times brides are giving their bouquet to uh, someone special to them. It might be an aunt who helped them plan the wedding. It might be a grandparent who's been married a long time. Um, and they're doing more of a handing off of the bouquet to someone special versus having a competition on the dance floor for people to see who's going to get married next. Does that make sense? So yeah, again, that my, my feminist comes out on some of these traditions just because the absurdity of it. See, as a photographer, I see the catching of the bouquet or even the catching of the garter to be quite entertaining because I get a lot of fun watching people jump and, you know, fake jostle or maybe some might be a little drunk and want to jostle. But I find it's it's a fun tradition in the sense in that sense where it does get the crowd together when you have a crowd, as you say. And if you can and if the crowd is of the of the personality that they're into that because I've seen other, like I literally have seen and I've, so I've said to some my couples who are like we want to do the garter and the bouquet toss because you know like you said they've seen it at parties it's been lots of fun and all of those things so I often suggest instead of saying all the single folks come on the dance floor let's just get all the ladies all the men all the whatever because again we have a lot of people who are either gender neutral or are transitioning so they've got that kind of controversy over male or female um so you know whatever it is bring people on the dance floor but let's not isolate it to single ladies and single men let's just get people up on the dance floor we'll throw them both at the same time whoever catches what and let's just have some fun with it yeah absolutely and it often gets the party going people are just having fun because they've all had a camaraderie you know around catching whatever it is and then they can keep dancing and have more fun Exactly. And so that's how I position a lot of these things to to a lot of my clients is that, yes, some of some of the traditions of our Western ceremony are quite bizarre and often barbaric. But we can look at that or we can just decide what will make our day feel like us and reflect who we are and be fun. So when we look at it that way, it's a little less terrifying. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I've seen you in action and I know that you're very big on making sure that the couple is doing it the way they want to because traditions have changed over the years. Yeah. And so for me, it's really about let's let's look at some of these traditions and let's look at the origins of them. Um, does that make you want it more or less? Oh, more? Okay, then let's definitely do it. Oh, less? Well, then let's take it out. And we, we've also taken to trying to, you know, create some new traditions. We see things that we weren't seeing in the past, like unity candles, where we've got blending of families. I have, uh, I have friends who are getting married, uh, hopefully this fall, cross your fingers. It's my only wedding that hasn't postponed to next year. Uh, and they're doing a family puzzle where they're getting a piece for each member of the family because it's too... Uh, families with three kids all together coming together so they've got they've ordered a five-piece puzzle with all their names in it and in the ceremony they're going to incorporate putting the puzzle together we can also make new traditions you know I've had a few couples who have both walked down an aisle instead of having one or the other things like you know taking the men's name uh, back in the day was again about ownership and I've seen I've had two grooms myself who have taken their wife's name instead because they wanted to carry on their wife's name. So they're, we're seeing a lot of people who are making their own traditions and starting their own kind of practices to make the day their own. We did forget one part that I wanted to ask too was, what is the idea behind not seeing each other before the wedding? So again, that comes from uh, arranged marriages and where the marriages were the result of a, like a financial exchange or a business arrangement. And the idea of not being afraid and running away from them. So you hide them the longer you can. 
uh, the bachelor party or the stag night, it actually goes even further back to 5th century BC in uh, ancient Sparta, where Spartan soldiers held a dinner in their friends' honor and made toast on their behalf. And I guess the girls started adding their own party later on? Exactly. When we ceased to be property and we were able to make our own decisions... <laughs> We decided we wanted our own party too, which I think it makes uh, a lot of sense. Um, speaking of like parties and stuff outside of the ceremony, wedding showers. Um, wedding showers were originally created. Uh, I can't tell you the exact date, but I would say it would be early, like last century. Uh, and the purpose of them were to bring together the items that a couple needed for their uh, for their creating their home together. Because, again, they were virgins. They typically lived with their parents until they got married. So the new couple was starting their home together, and they just needed things. They needed dishes. They needed glassware. They needed furniture. They just needed whatever you needed to to make a home. And so showers were created to shower the couple with gifts. And the biggest challenge has been that, again, so many couples are living together before they're getting married, often having children before they're getting married. So what are we showering them with? And so we've seen things where people are asking for money, they're asking for, they're registered for their honeymoon and things like that. And I always tell my couples, it's like at the end of the day, think about what you might need moving forward and that would be what you register for. But it's definitely, uh, that's one tradition that isn't going away even though the purpose of it no longer exists. You know what I mean? And then back in those days when we were talking about having them come together for a shower to create their homes, the wedding cake. You go to a lot of weddings, you take a lot of photos of the cake cutting, right? Yes. What's the, the symbolism behind the cake cutting is that it's their first domestic task undertaken as husband and wife and we're getting a photo of it. And then when we pose for it again, how it's typically posed again comes back to that ownership where the bride's hand is on the bottom the groom's hand is on top and his arms around her actually shows that ownership again. But I like to go back to 90% of my grooms are bigger than my brides and it makes for an easier pose. <laughs> yes, I agree with you there. <laughs> uh, and a lot, of, a lot of couples are asking about freezing their top layer of their cake. Do you know why people used to freeze that cake? Well, I've heard that a year later you eat it. Mm-hmm. It was typically... Um, back in like Roman times and, and mythical, like kind of more mythical times when superstition and, and that kind of thing were, were more popular, wheat symbolized fertility. So saving the cake and eating it on your first anniversary, if you haven't had a baby, is to help invoke that fertility. You'll also hear that the um, cake is eaten like when the baby is born. And that's because they've had the baby. Now you're celebrating that baby. But here's the thing. Back in ye olden days, and again, I'm going to go, I'm aging Rosie and I. Do you remember growing up and our parents used to bring home that fruit cake wedding cake? And it was chock full of rum and dried fruits. Yes. The difference is that not a lot of people are excited about fruit cake anymore. And not a lot of families have someone in the family who makes that rum fruit cake like we used to. What... Whenever you want to freeze something for a long span of time, it needs some sort of preservative in it. And our fluffier vanillas and chocolates and red velvets and cakes that, that our, our bakers are making now don't have that key ingredient of booze in there as a preservative. When you're making a cake of, of dried fruits, which are already preserved in themselves, and you're adding alcohol, and you, again, I remember those little pieces of cake, those could sit on the shelf for a year. And we go back and it would taste exactly the same. Well, yes, they're like the Christmas cakes, right? I mean, you could have them exactly. for months. Yeah. Exactly. Well, our, our modern wedding cakes aren't like that anymore. My experience with them has been that if anyone saves it for that long, they're eating cardboard. <laughs> so I try really hard to encourage all of my couples who are getting married and want to, again, celebrate that tradition of fertility after they've been married a year please load your cake with rum. Talk to your baker about dried fruit and rum so that it might actually taste like something in a year. You could probably make a nice rum and nut cake. I'm sure that would be good. Yeah. Yeah. And I do have, I do have one couple who's got an aunt that she, she makes the rum cake for the, for every wedding. And it's like, even if they just make that rum cake for that first, uh, that first top layer that doesn't get cut, then we can take it away and save it and like it gets packed and wrapped. And, and again, remember it had like the really hard cream cheese icing around it as well too. Like that was all created to keep the moisture in and to help that, that cake last longer. Yes, very interesting. 
So if we go back a little bit and we look at maybe the ceremony, because we kind of jumped ahead to the party. I don't know why, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> Probably because it's our favorite thing to do. <laughs> no, if, <laughs> but if we go to the wedding ceremony, I'm guessing there's a ton of tradition in there. Oh, yes. Like everything in, in the wedding ceremony is, is steeped in some sort of tradition. So uh, legally, like we're in Ontario. So legal in Ontario, um, to make us a ceremony legal, there are three questions. And it's basically a will you, will you, and do you? And you say, yes, yes, yes. Boom, you're married. Uh, you sign a paper and literally, and you've got witnesses and you're married. There's nothing more required in a ceremony than that. So the bulk of our ceremonies are steeped often in religion. Our uh, So I was raised uh, Catholic, so in the Christian uh, religion. So we see things like prayers and we see things like readings and we see things like music. And all of those have to do with kind of the religious side of it, even though we do have non-denominational weddings, which don't necessarily have religion as a part of it. Most of the flow of the ceremony has still been pulled from that uh, traditional wedding ceremony, like the idea of, of a ring, uh, the roundness of it uh, that comes goes back to Greek times when and that idea of, of forever that a circle has no no beginning and no end, and that's how what marriage is considered. But the actual putting it on on your finger, that's an ownership thing again, believe it or not. So, you know, I've got a ring that matches, you know, Mark Sega, who's my husband, therefore I am owned by Mark Sega. But there are other traditions that aren't necessarily in our, in a, every traditional Western ceremony, but they actually come from different um, cultural experiences. Have you heard of like uh, the Celtic tradition of hand fasting in a ceremony? Yes. It's, it's, yeah. So it actually comes from Ireland. Uh, started in Ireland, move over, moved into kind of um, Scotland, and this goes like way back to like ancient Ireland, seven thousand BC and beyond. So this is before Christ, so before Christianity, and so there wasn't the same structure to these things then than there is now. We didn't have the legality of it. You didn't have to like sign a registry or anything along those lines. But the idea of, of hand fasting or tying your hands together was symbolism to show that they are joining their lives together. So it's a really nice tradition to put into your wedding as a way to kind of finish this, the right saying, look, you are now tied together. You're, you know, together forever. Your union is complete. Uh, that's where it comes from. So it's based in kind of, I guess, more like paganism than anything else. And it's not based and, on and ownership or patriarchy. Exactly. Exactly. So, and that is literally where the term tying the knot comes from. So they tie the knot around the hands. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, now something similar to that, that we might have seen here in North America, this idea of, of not having money and not having the, you know, the more traditional ceremony in place. There's the concept of jumping the broom that I've seen in um, the southern U.S. and dates back to slave times when slaves were not people. They were not considered humans. So they had no rights as humans and people. So for um, slaves to get married, they jumped over a broom. And again, it was this whole ceremony around this last step of jumping over the room to show that you were married because they were basically coming up with a ceremony based on what they had around them and what they could do quickly and without their owners seeing them. So some really crazy stuff like that. So culture you know, versus religion. Um, I did a beautiful uh, Greek Orthodox ceremony a couple of years ago. And it's interesting because personally, I'm not a, a super um, religious person. I'm not a, a regular practicing Christian. But to see the beauty and the, I don't even know what the word is. I want to say almost like the sanctity, but it's not the quite word, the word of it. But just the tradition of threes in the Greek Orthodox ceremony was really interesting to see. Um, everything that was done in the ceremony was based on threes. So representing the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. And so the best man was very integral to the ceremony, more so than I've seen in, in a, any other culture. Um, best man actually had to provide these crowns that were put on the bride and the groom's head, and he had to trade them back and forth three times. He had to walk around them holding the strings from those veils three times with the priest. Like it was just this concept of three and this very intricate ceremony. It was really, really interesting to watch. So sometimes we forget because we get used to doing the same thing at every wedding all the time. We do this, we do exchange the rings, the blah, 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 and off we go. Uh, to stop and, and look at some of these uh, different traditions from around the world is really, really cool to see. Mm -hmm. And have you done other types of, of uh, weddings that had different traditions? 
Those are the two big ones. I have worked uh, as like a second on a, a Jewish ceremony, so I don't have as much insight into it. I know that Jewish couples get married under a chuppah, and it's it symbolizes the like the the fact that it has four stilts, like one under each side, in a covered roof, is to symbolize the new home the bride and groom are building together. Often, the four posts of the chuppah are held up by family or friends, showing how they'll support the couple in their wedding together and building their kind of their their home and their life together, which is pretty cool. Something else you'll see uh, in a Jewish ceremony is the signing of the ketubah, uh, and I apologize to anyone if I'm pronouncing it wrong. But the ketubah is basically the marriage contract that outlines the groom's responsibilities to his bride. So it basically dictates what he is going to provide in the marriage. So they're not actually religious documents, but they're actually like civil law. So very similar to our marriage license that we have in Ontario is the ketubah. And it's it's a more of a, a Jewish law within their culture versus ours being a law within our legal system. And then one of the most interesting, or I think one of the most recognized parts of a Jewish ceremony is the breaking of the glass. Often you'll see the couple is invited to either step on a glass with a wrapped in a napkin or it's placed in a cloth bag and it's broken. There's a few kind of origins to where the breaking of the glass comes from. Some say it represents like the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Others say it demonstrates that idea of in our Western ceremony, we hear that we're getting married for better or for worse. So marriage can sometimes hold sorrow as well as joy. And uh, the idea of breaking the glass is your commitment to stand by each other, even in hard times, which I think is kind of cool. Some people will then collect the shards of glass. It's actually incorporated into some sort of like memory or memento of the wedding day after. So again, I mean, we all get caught up in, in our own rituals, but it's often really cool to kind of learn about other cultures and traditions and things that they do in their ceremony. So I have one more to wrap up with, which I think is pretty fun, unless you have any other questions. I might, but let's wrap up with this one first. Okay. So uh, the last one that I wanted to share with you is why does the groom carry the bride over the threshold? Yep. And we all do it. It's fun. And I'm sure I'm not the only one whose head was bonked against the side of a doorframe when I was brought into not only our first home, but also into the honeymoon suite that night, causing, causing of concussions everywhere. That again, comes from this idea of women being property uh, and evil spirits. So A, the thought that the bride was vulnerable to evil spirits. So you lift up her feet so she doesn't get caught up in any spirits that might be lingering at the threshold but also comes from the idea of the kidnapping of the bride to make sure she doesn't get get away. The groom's got to pick her up and carry her into the honeymoon suite. So barbaric. I love it. So many of these traditions seem very patriarchal and very traditional in the land uh, transfers. (laughs) Yeah. I guess when we look at the traditions today, as you've touched upon this a little bit, when couples are wanting to get married and they're looking at all these traditions... What's sort of your best advice as a wedding planner on how they should look at these traditions? Yeah, I, I look at these wedding traditions the same way I look at uh, and advise couples on marriage or when you meet someone who's having a baby and, you know, all the advice that you get and everyone has an opinion and, you know, so-and-so says you should breastfeed or your child will be ruined and be sick its whole life. And other people say, give your baby formula because you don't have enough things to give them, that kind of thing. And we hear the same thing with marriage and getting married. Oh, you have to wear white. Oh, you have to do the the cutting of the cake because, you know, no one now wants a photo or any of these, you know, things that kind of come up. I say, learn about the traditions. If you like them, maybe you don't like the history, but you like the tradition, then go for it. If these traditions don't resonate with you, throw them out and let's make uh, the ceremony more your own. Uh, I've got one coming up this fall. Again, a friend of mine is getting married. It's a second marriage for both of them. And they're like, we don't want to do this, 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 and this. And I said, let's not do it. Let's find something else instead to celebrate your joining of two people. And this, again, these two families in a way that resonates with you. So I think it's important to understand the traditions before you throw them away understand why you know you've always envisioned them or you've thought about doing them and if that part is important to you then go for it but if it's not resonating with you and you just don't want a wedding cake or you just don't want to garter or you don't want dad walking down the aisle or whatever tradition is is kind of you're not sitting well with you 
then don't do it. As long as you're, you know, doing that minimum to make your ceremony legal and you're taking the sanctity of the act of getting married and respecting that and recognizing how important it is. Because I have had couples say, well, we just want the wedding ceremony to be five minutes and go straight to the party. And I'll often, you know, I try to talk them out of it saying, let's give that ceremony at least the, you know, 20 minutes it deserves because it's the reason for the day that you're joining yourselves together for the rest of your lives. So let's honor that. But it doesn't mean that you have to honor it with our traditions that don't resonate with you either. And what about writing of the vows? Yeah, like there's no question that uh, I haven't been to a ceremony as long as I've been in the industry and I've been in the industry for eight or nine years now. Um, I've never been to a ceremony where they're expected to obey. Obey has been pretty much taken out of every script that I've seen. But I do have something to say about the vows and your own vows from two kind of perspectives. There's a lot of pressure that couples put on each other when writing their own vows. And I'm gonna I'm gonna position this actually from the perspective of myself and my husband because we're about as different as two people can get. And when we got married, anytime, the idea of my husband having to write down his feelings and say them in front of a hundred people is insanity. It's not fair to him because he's not comfortable with that. And what happens is is sometimes we've got couples where one is really into writing their own vows and one is really not into it at all for a variety of reasons. They might be uncomfortable with speaking the truth in front of a large group of people. They might not be able to find the right words. We're not all romance writers. And I think it's important to recognize, again, who you are as a couple and what will make you both feel comfortable on your day. So... It's absolutely okay to use traditional vows that your officiant has. It's also absolutely okay to write your own vows. And, and basically, as long as it's, you know, about honoring each other, that it's a good thing. What my husband and I ended up doing, because I did want our vows to mean something to us, is we, this is way back when the internet first came out, <laughs> we went to a website. It was something like tvvows.com. It doesn't exist anymore, so I can't even you know, give it a plug. But I mean, Google is our friend, right? And we actually found vows from television shows. And one ended up being, and, and not on purpose, one ended up being from a daytime uh, soap opera, one ended up being from a nighttime type soap opera. Not on purpose, but who writes romance better than soap opera writers? Um, but the words meant something to us. So even though they, we didn't write them and they didn't come out of our brains they still had meaning to us. And if the traditional vows of do you, you know, will you love, honor and cherish, if those mean something to you, that's cool too. But what I hate to see is the pressure that that couples put on each other. And then I literally see them the night before still trying to write their vows. Give yourself a break, you know, if again, and, and also to the, you know, to both. So to the, the one couple member who is not comfortable with it, yeah, you're right. It, it can be scary to to do these things, but I'd suggest do some research and find something you like. So that instead of you having to come up with it, you know, off the top of your head, that's an option. Or also to the one who's demanding that they write everything from their heart and bear their soul, you know, make sure you know who your partner is and who you're marrying and that you're not putting extra pressure on them that is going to make them feel uncomfortable on this day. It's all about blending your personalities for the rest of your life. And I guess we can segue into something that's not quite related to tradition, but it's we still see it in the wedding day. So often the best man and the maid of honor and the parents will all do speeches. So when we look at, you know, the speeches, maybe your advice again on the do's and don'ts, you know, what, what is the best way to do it if you want to do it? Can we ban the word speeches forever? The terminology um, actually should be toasts and I'll, and I'll explain why. Uh, when people think of a speech, They think of multiple pages standing in front of people at a podium and reading from it. And there's a huge amount of of pressure on the content and the meaning of it and, 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 you know, why we've come together to hear this speech. Realistically, it's toasts we see at wedding. The purpose of those moments is to toast and celebrate the couple, not to list off everything embarrassing they've ever done or talk about inside jokes that no one's heard of. So I did I did grunt openly, and I'm not the only wedding professional who does. Uh, in a, I've, I do read a lot of, you know, what do people love about weddings? What do people hate about weddings? Both on the couple side, the vendor side, and the guest side. And, and when we get to speeches, that's 
really just for the bride and groom. The guests are often very frustrated because they don't understand the stories, they don't know them, or they you know, it doesn't resonate with them. And the vendors, it can be frustrating because it can really stretch out a period that doesn't need to be that stretched. And I promise every maid of honor cries, every best man is, feels like he's not prepared, like all of these things, you know, typically the bride cries when, you know, dad or best friend, like I hate to say it, but they're not new things. It happens at every wedding. Uh, so the idea behind the toasting, there actually are specific reasons why it's the best man, the maid of honor, uh, and each of the parents as well as the wedding couple. So the honor attendants, the so best man, maid of honor, best woman, uh, man of honor, the people who are standing up and are the witnesses to the ceremony are typically invited up to speak. And the uh, the groom's best man or attendant is meant to honor and toast the opposite spouse's wedding party. Same with the maid of honor or the bride's representative. They're meant to toast the opposite person's wedding party so it's like don't they look good thank you for being here thank you for being here for you know my friend's spouse and you know off we go done but we do often encourage them say something nice about your friend because you're up there anyways and this is your chance to say hey you know I'm glad that we're friends two to five minutes tops and then we get on to um, our parents and oftentimes the parents are, are up there speaking because traditionally they've been the hosts of the party and Again, it's a nice way for them to welcome their child's spouse into the family and toast them. And again, as well, to toast their child and say, we love you. You're awesome. You know, we're proud of you. Off you go. Two to five minutes. And then lastly, it's important for the couple getting married to get up because they need they should be saying thank you to people for being there. Thank you to our attendants. Thank you to our guests. You know, thank you everyone for being here. What isn't required is a dedication to every single member of your wedding party and your family. Um, I think that I've, I've mentioned to a lot of my couples that the rehearsal dinner is a great time to do those because it's a smaller, more, more intimate gathering. More people tend to know each other. And those stories and those moments mean more to the people that are at that gathering. And you're not on a timeline like you are during your, your wedding dinner. And then some basic do's and don'ts. You know, don't get hammered before you do your speech or before you do your toast, that's usually a good one. Make sure you're bringing a glass up with you. So when you go to do the toast, you actually have a glass there. Um, more than once I've tried to have like glasses near there with like water and it doesn't, it rarely works out. So it's like, bring your glass with you because you are going to do a toast. And I think if it's presented to those people as a toast, as opposed to a speech, it's less daunting and they're more likely to bring their drink up. Yes. I know this because I know you. <laughs> You've also worked as a caterer. So yes, I have. looking at it from that perspective, was there anything interesting that you wanted to share too to potential brides and grooms? Oh, goodness. Where do I start? That's a, that's a whole other show. Uh, literally in... Uh, so I, uh, I co-host a podcast as well on uh, food, wine, and travel called Flying for Flavor. And how I actually got involved in that podcast is my good friend, Stephanie uh, Pichet, who also was owned a catering company the same time that I managed one, uh, said, let's get together and talk about wedding food and wine and, tr and this kind of thing. And it was actually, we ended up recording for two and a half hours. <laughs> so, so I'll try to keep it more brief than that was. Um, I think the biggest thing around food food, it's the biggest budget number. Like that wedding dress is a big one. Food and beverage is always going to be your biggest bill. It's typically anywhere from 30 to 55% of your overall wedding budget. And that's hard for a lot of people to wrap their mind around because it's just such a large amount of money. But if you think about what we spend for like a three course meal for Christmas or Thanksgiving, I mean, Lord knows I spent about $500 on my family of four, you know, and that's without wine. So when you start looking at that, when you're hosting, you know, 100, 300 people, that number goes up exponentially. And a lot of, especially with a Western wedding and a lot of cultures, the meal is more than a couple of courses and it goes on for hours. And again, I say to you, this is your opportunity to do your wedding your way. Traditional etiquette dictates people are coming from afar. You got to make sure you, you feed them a meal. You know, there's different views on that for sure. Uh, at the end of the day, it can be, you know, I've been at a many say Italian in our community. Our Italian wedding uh, dinners tend to be, you know, five to six courses um, and it lasts, you know, three to four hours. If that's what you want to do and that suits your wedding style and your budget, have at it. But there's no rule that says you have to have a multi-course meal. 
I have couples who are doing market style meals, where it's basically, it's a couple of hours of having a few market stations open. You know, one might be Mexican food, one might be sushi, you know, one might be, or you might have one with meats roasting, one with vegetables and, you know, and have these options of people mingling around versus just sitting and being served. I've had brunches. Brunches are huge in the United States, a Sunday morning wedding where people get married at like 10 or 11 o'clock and they have brunch after instead, or a one o'clock ceremony with a beautiful tea party. There are so many things that you can do with food that we often get hung up on, again, tradition or what the tradition of our culture, our geographical area, our community is. One of the coolest things um, we, because in Canada, our weddings go on forever. Uh, our weddings typically go until midnight, one, two, three o'clock in the morning. We have a late night meal because we're serving alcohol. We want to make sure we're being responsible and people are getting access to food. I did a wedding in England and the late night food was basically a curry buffet. Best late night meal ever. Because like it was hearty, it had, you know, meat, it had vegetables, it had carbs with the breads. And it was just like at late night, that's usually what we're looking for. We're looking for something hearty and rib kind of sticking kind of goodness. And it it was I found out uh, from the guests that were there that it was that was like everyone had it was a typical late night meal was was curries. And I was like, this is something I need to bring to Canada. So, you know, if any of my clients out there are looking for something different, let's talk curry. <laughs> yeah, but it really is geographical by far. And again, like we see just between the U.S. and Canada, a huge difference because U.S. parties, oftentimes like DJs can do two events a day because they'll have one wedding that's say during the day until four and they'll have another one that starts, you know, seven o'clock that night. And none of them go past midnight because they all want to get on to the honeymoon. I know what our Canadian couple is not wanting to get on with their honeymoon. They're all too exhausted to honeymoon when they're done. I often say rent that honeymoon suite for a second night because you're not going to even notice it the first night. <laughs> yeah. Well, funnily enough, actually, somebody had told me that before I got married and they said renting a really fancy hotel room, you know, by the time you get there, you're almost yeah. out. So do yeah. it the second night. If you're going to go all out and, you know, get the hot tub and the special chocolates or whatever, then just do it the second night. Yeah. I agree because everyone's too tired. I I mean, I certainly don't know and I don't ask because we're not looking for a piece of her dress anymore in, in this day and age, but I wouldn't be surprised if a large percentage of, of my couples don't even consummate because it's just they're too exhausted. They're either exhausted or intoxicated because they've been partying from 7 until 2 a.m. Maybe, maybe it's just because you and I are getting older. So. <laughs> <laughs> Our partying days are far behind us. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, no, but I just party a little bit earlier. Day drinking is really fun. <laughs> No, it definitely changes as you age also. Um, so I guess I also know that, because I know you, <laughs> um, that you've been married a long time. So let's talk a little bit about anniversary traditions. So what's the the basic traditions that you've seen over the years? Um, well, and that's really interesting as well, too, because I've even found that some couples, they have like their dating anniversary, and then they have their engagement anniversary, and then they have their wedding anniversary. I mean, you can uh, to say that there are like, traditions or specific things or celebrations around anniversaries, it's it's all really personal and everybody's really different. And you can Google at any time and find out what the traditional uh, gift is for a first anniversary to a fifth anniversary to, and then it jumps to like 10, 15, 20, 25, 50, because we skip over some of those. Uh, and the, I think the only real, I guess, tradition that I've seen, it's, it's different in our home as well too. So let me kind of back up a little bit. We got engaged on Valentine's Day. And we got married on Valentine's Day. Cheesiest thing in the world. The wedding planner who got married on Valentine's Day. I can't even. Not on purpose. It's a long story for another podcast. Uh, so in our home, it kind of loses. Like I, It's like we sort of do Valentine's Day. We sort of do anniversary. But it kind of all gets lost in the shuffle because we've got two kids and, and all of the things that happen with kids around Valentine's Day. But the, the one thing that I, I can say that I've seen more often is the idea of a vow renewal. That's probably like I've seen anniversary parties and I've helped you know plan and host anniversary parties. Um, but I think one thing that's really special around an anniversary is the idea of a vow renewal. And again, this is where I, I mentioned a couple of times, my husband and I are very different. Uh, my husband doesn't like to like express his emotions or talk in public or anything along those lines. It's been a hard slog to convince him. We've been married, we'll be 20 years in 2021. And when we were married 10 years, I asked him, I said, I really want to do a vow renewal. I think it's a great way to, to celebrate that we've been together. 10 years it's a milestone these days we see a lot of people are breaking up before these hitting these milestones my husband said I told you I loved you 10 years ago if anything changes I'll let you know 
So I kind of accepted at the time. I, he did get me a new uh, wedding set because at the time my uh, my wedding set was causing eczema. I was reacting to the, the metal. So he bought me a new set with different metal, which was beautiful. We're coming up on 20 years again next year. And so I spoke to him. Uh, I want to say it was, it was Christmas time-ish, I would say. And I said to him, I said, you know, 20 years coming up next year. You know, I, I think that it's time. We've been through a lot. We've got two teenagers going through a global pandemic. We've survived it all. And so I said, I feel like, okay, fine, 10 years ago, it didn't feel as important. I said, it's important to me now because just what you go through, what you grow through, what you have to overcome to make it to 20 years is, is you know, not to pat myself on the back, but it's, I mean, Rosie, you've been married 20 years, you know, it's a lot. Yeah, coming up on 25, actually. <laughs> Holy moly, look at that. I didn't swear just for you. So I said to him, I said, for our 20 year anniversary, I want a vow renewal. And he looked at me and said, okay, fine. So we're doing one next year and I'm very excited, but I have to plan it all. And so this is where I talk about the compromise and knowing the, the personality of your partner. Just my husband saying, yeah, okay, whatever was huge. So I'll take care of all the details. He doesn't have to write vows. He doesn't have to like, you know, it's like, just show up, be there. And that will be him making a huge commitment in itself. So, so I guess when it comes to, that's probably the biggest. And I know you guys, it wasn't your 20th that you guys renewed, was it? It was your 15th. You know, so that's probably the most common thing. And let's remember that a vow renewal doesn't have to be a full wedding if you don't want it to be. We see like, you know, some celebrities go back to the beach every year and renew their vows. It can be just the two of you. Uh, it can be you with your family. Like the vow renewal that we're choosing to do next year is maybe 50 people because we do want to have some of our friends around. We got married on the beach by ourselves before, so we wanted to have some people around us. But we're involving our kids and still keeping it fairly low key as compared to, say, a first wedding might be. So at the end of the day, and I think when it comes to marriages and celebrating anniversaries, I think it's important to acknowledge that two human beings mating for life, I swear, is against our biology. And I think it's really amazing when we recommit to each other each year to spend another kind of trip around the sun together. And it's important to acknowledge it in some way. Mm -hmm. My husband, inevitably, uh, his head office for the company he works for is overseas. Inevitably, in February around our anniversary and October around my birthday, he's always out of town. <laughs> true love, my friend, true love. But we celebrate our, our, in our own ways. I think that wedding traditions are, as you said, they're really important as long as they fit what you're wanting to do. That's exactly it, right? And I think that like you hit the nose on the head earlier when I said nail on the head, not the nose on the head. You hit the nail on the head earlier when you you said that knowing me and my approach to weddings with my clients, and that's exactly it. To, to me, uh, we like our company has two main like missions almost, and one is to ensure that our couples relax and enjoy their day and are able to experience and be in that moment versus worrying about other things. And the other part is to help them put together a day or a celebration that is reflective of them. And, you know, I always say we work for our couples. We don't work for their families. We don't work for their grandparents. We, we work for them. Uh, and it's our, our priority to make sure that their day is a reflection and um, is a day that celebrates them specifically. So throw some out or celebrate them, whatever works best for you. And we're here either way. Yeah. And if anybody has questions, they can send you a message. Absolutely. Uh, my website is www.jackaroundyevents.ca. And I'm sure, Rosie, you have some sort of place where you can post stuff um, because no one can spell Jackaranda. Um, and that's the easiest way to get you know, a hold of us. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, so again, searching for Jackaranda event, we'll, uh, you'll find us and, and definitely reach out. We'll be more than happy to, to chat, especially since this year is so quiet with no weddings happening. It's perfect time to chat. <laughs> Perfect time to think about weddings or anniversaries or renewals. So definitely reach out to Cynthia. Thank you. And I guess, I mean, this was a lot of fun. This is similar to regular conversations we tend to have. Pretty much. <laughs> this gives a little insight into our crazy friendship. Um, <laughs> and funnily enough, we didn't meet through weddings, even though we're both in the wedding industry. So No, isn't that funny? Yeah, it's, it's the best story, right? Because I basically stalked you on the internet. Because we met briefly before I moved to Australia when you were having your last child. And because uh, we had a, your neighbor was a, a good friend of mine and still is a, a very good friend of mine. And uh, I stalked Rosie for three years when I was in Australia because she has seven children and I was always so in awe of how they survived. And then when we came back, our, our friendship rekindled through the wedding industry. So it's cool. Barely survived. Barely. <laughs> I still don't know if I'm surviving. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'll tell you in 10 years when they're all past adulthood. I can't even imagine. Thank you so much, Cynthia. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. I mean, I know your schedule is jam-packed right now, too, with other things. So, I don't know. I appreciate it. Again, thank you so much, Cynthia. That was very informative, and I'm so happy we finally were able to get together. We've been planning this for a long time. You can catch me on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, at history or at history.podcast. You can go to the website, history.com. And if you get a chance to rate this podcast on your podcasting platform, that really helps people find me, apparently. So I really, really appreciate your efforts in this matter. And of course, I would like to thank my husband, Jamie, and our brood of kids, our family, our friends, and the teachers that have helped me adventure through history. Without you, it wouldn't be possible. Un grand merci.